KPFK in Los Angeles, this is Living in the USA. I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Later in the show, what if everybody voted? What if voting was a duty, not just a right, an obligation, something like jury duty? E.J. Dion and Miles Rappaport will explain their new book is 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. Also later in the show, KPFK Sports. It's opening day for Major League Baseball, and Peter Dreyer will talk about baseball oligarchs and baseball rebels, and about Bernie Sanders' blistering attack on the owners. But first, today's political update with Harold Meyerson. Of course, he's editor-at-large of the American Prospect. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. Well, it's been almost a week since workers at the Amazon Fulfillment Center on Staten Island voted to form a union. It's the first union ever at the second second biggest employer in America. The New York Times called it one of the most significant labor victories in a generation. I'd just like to read from the beginning of their report on how this whole thing began. In the first dark days of the pandemic, an Amazon worker named Christian Smalls planned a small panicked walkout over safety conditions at the retailer's only fulfillment center in New York City. The company quietly mobilized. Amazon formed a reaction team involving 10 departments, including its Global Intelligence Program, a security group staffed by military veterans. The company named an incident commander and relied on a protest response playbook and a labor activity playbook to ward off what they called business disruptions. In the end, the New York Times reports, there were more executives, including 11 vice presidents, who were alerted about the protest than the workers who attended it. Amazon's chief counsel then described Christian Smalls as, quote, not smart or articulate, close quote, in an email he sent to a thousand people. He recommended making Christian Smalls the face of efforts to organize workers. The company then fired Christian Smalls, saying he had violated quarantine rules by attending the walkout. In dismissing and smearing him, the company relied on the hardball tactics that had driven its dominance of the market. The company's response to his tiny initial protest may haunt it for years to come. Close quote. The New York Times. Um, so how there's there's still a, a million and a half Amazon workers who don't have a union. Uh, how did this group in Staten Island do it? Well, first of all, give credit where credit is due. Amazon wanted to make Christian Smalls the face of the worker uprising, and they succeeded. And now he is the face of the first successful unionization effort at, at an Amazon warehouse. So uh, thank you, Amazon. Secondly, you know, uh, for all that this is the new high-tech economy, Michigas, uh, this is exactly what major corporations have done since time immemorial. When the UAW had its uh, incredible breakthrough strike in Flint in 1937, which led to the creation of uh, the unionization of uh, in industrial workers and manufacturing workers. Their main concern was uh, General Motors spies who had infiltrated uh, their own ranks, and they had to do all kinds of uh, contortions in order to get around that. So uh, the same rotten process uh, which American big business and much of American small business has followed 
uh, essentially since uh, the end of the Civil War, uh, still pertains uh, in the so-called new economy. Uh, but uh, the campaign that the Amazon workers waged was a uh, brilliant inside the house campaign. All the organizers were Amazon workers, or in the case of Chris Smalls, uh, people who had been Amazon workers who had been fired for, for trying to unionize. Um, and, you know, it, I think it's important as this goes forward that, uh, that this reflects, uh, you know, a, a growing generational wave. Uh, the people who work in Amazon warehouses and in uh, uh, the service and retail sectors generally in the United States tend to be young. They reflect the demographics of the young, which is a higher percentage of people of color than in uh, older generations. And they are a generation that politically, in many ways, defined itself by uh, supporting Bernie Sanders in 2015, 2016, and 2020. And that has a, a rate of union approval, according to the most recent Gallup poll, of 77%. And I should add that the general rate of union approval of 65% is the highest it's been since the mid-1960s. So this really is uh, a wave that finally uh, on Staten Island reached the shore. And it also coincides, and this is going to be very important going forward, with uh, Joe Biden's National Labor Relations Board appointees, who are the most devoted to restoring the National Labor Relations Act to what it was when it was passed and what its author's intentions were, which were to give workers a clear, untrammeled shot at developing worker voice, and if they wanted a union, then getting a union. So all of those factors have come together. There are unfortunately some other factors too. The most remarkable thing about <clears throat> the victory at Staten Island is that the workers did it, as you say, all by themselves, it was a rank and file organizing effort without help from any national or international union, something that really never occurred to people like you and me before. Um, what are the implications for established unions in the United States? They, they seem completely irrelevant to this victory. Well, not entirely irrelevant. Uh, the New York local of Unite Here, which is the hotel workers uh, in, uh, in New York, gave uh, uh, gave the Amazon labor union that that is the uh, this small organization gave it and some office space gave it some chairs gave it a desk uh, and a, a seasoned uh, pro union lawyer uh, has been working with them pro bono which they need uh, but yes it poses a real interesting question for the established labor movement which has uh, you know uh, been batting uh, not very high. Uh, in recent years or in recent decades or since about 1976, uh, when it came to organizing uh, workplaces and, and workers. And I know there is talk and I have an article which I have edited, which the American Prospect will probably post on Monday from a very prominent labor official that argues in essence that the top priority for uh, uh, existing American unions is to see where there are workers self-organizing this millennial and sometimes Gen Z generation, uh, which really is kind of just existentially alien to the people who run American unions, yes. if, if by no other reason than simply by age, 
um, and helping them every way they can in, in, in devoting large sums of money to backing their efforts, but understanding at the same time that they are uh, not substituting for these efforts, but they are supplementing and helping uh, such efforts. And uh, I know one of the people uh, involved in advancing this is even talking about um, uh, sort of union financial resources, which everyone has known, which everyone who really follows this has known, uh, have been there for decades, which remain untapped. And that is to say, most unions, fairly venerable institutions, outright own uh, their offices uh, and their office buildings. Um, and there's nothing uh, uh, preventing them from uh, taking out a little low interest uh, mortgage on that building and uh, using some of their funds for uh, helping these efforts. Uh, the point being that uh, in, uh, among American private sector workers, the rate of unionization is down to 6.1%. Uh, and any uh, increase in this is bound to help all of workers uh, and all of unions, whether or not they are the kind of unionization campaigns that lead to the established unions actually gaining dues paying members. I think we have to assume that at least for a while, if this thing continues, that will not be the case. The immediate challenge on Staten Island is contract negotiations. Chris Smalls and his group have never been involved in contract negotiations. We usually think of this as a job for seasoned professionals. How is this going to work uh, at JFK 8? Well, uh, as I said, they have, working with them, some seasoned union lawyers. They have templates of union contracts to draw on. The Teamsters, uh, I should add have uh, many uh, old established warehouses in this country, though none from Amazon, none from Walmart, under contract. So there are model contracts. And what I know is being discussed in this sort of labor circle of people that I'm referred to in the previous answer is one thing that established unions could do would be draw up a kind of template from which uh, groups like the Amazon Labor Union, Chris Smalls's group, could draw, but you know, leave a lot of blanks for what the local itself feels like uh, it really it really wants, which we have to assume is going to be in some ways distinct from the model contracts of the you know that established unions have been presenting uh, for the last uh, many number of years. Then again, of course, if Amazon continues uh, on the course that you uh, outlined earlier, Amazon will do its darndest to stall and refuse to negotiate and all of that, which is where the NLRB, uh, newly remade, can come in. Uh, and you have told us a couple of times before that the Teamsters have made one of the priorities of their new leadership, organizing at Amazon. Uh, where does that stand today? Well, actually, this was a resolution that was passed last summer at the Teamsters convention almost universally, which is to say, uh, it was backed by the Ancien regime of the outgoing uh, president, Jim Hoffa, and it was backed by then the insurgent regime, uh, which uh, was sworn in to Timster leadership on March 22nd, so only a few weeks ago, led by Sean O'Brien, a Boston Teamster who is now president of the, uh, of the International. Uh, it pledged a great deal of resources, probably in excess of $100 million dollars, 
to wow. uh, uh, the project of unionizing Amazon warehouses. Now, I, I think it's pretty clear that when the Teamsters passed this resolution, they did not envision uh, what just happened in Staten Island. No one had envisioned, and this is not a wrap on them, no one had envisioned what just happened on Staten Island. But I do know that Chris Smalls uh, is going to be meeting with Sean O'Brien, and we will see where that goes. Uh, you know, some unions, SEIU and most notably, have invested a lot of resources in campaigns which don't really yield themselves uh, new members for SEIU. The Fight for 15 uh, succeeded in getting the minimum wage raised to 15 bucks in California and New York State and a host of cities and some other states too. I think recently New Jersey. But um, uh, it hasn't yielded any of the fast food unionization that SEIU had originally intended, but SEIU has continued to back this campaign, even though it costs them money um, and they're not getting more dues money uh, in, uh, in return for that. You know, whether the Teamsters will do something like that, we, we don't know yet, but they've kind of already willy-nilly committed themselves. And I think it'll be a mark of O'Brien's credibility uh, if he does go forward with the kind of understanding that, okay, um, you know, a number of these efforts are, you know, may succeed, but may not uh, yield any new uh, Teamster memberships. Shift of focus here. Monday was a national day of action on student debt when thousands of young people went to Washington to demand that Biden fulfill his campaign promise to cancel at least $10,000 of student debt was what he campaigned on. But Biden isn't doing it. All he's doing now is he announced extending a pause on federal student loan repayments through August 31st. This repayment freeze has been in place since the beginning of the pandemic. It was going to expire in a couple of weeks on May 1st. No payments have been required on most federal student loans since March 2020. Trump did, started this, and then Biden just sort of followed Trump's example. Uh, Chuck Schumer and Elizabeth Warren have been leading and pressuring Biden to cancel $50,000 of student loan debt, not just extend the deadline for repayment. Why won't Biden do it? This is a mystery to me, and I think it's a mystery to a lot of folks. Uh, polling has shown that among uh, Americans under the age of 30, Biden's popularity has dropped by 25 points since uh, his early months in office. Uh, he, he needs to bring that up before the midterm. So there are two ways to look at this August 31st thing. One, he is planning on retiring some student debt, uh, uh, you know, at that point, which would be right before the election and young people would actually have something to say, thank you, Joe Biden, for. Two, uh, there are absolute morons uh, in the White House who are opposed to this. Uh, uh, there's talk that uh, his domestic policy advisor is opposed to this. Uh, and um, uh, if student debt uh, is uh, then uh, not, uh, at least the suspension not renewed, much less retired on August 31st, uh, that means uh, uh, millions and millions of mainly young people will have to start repaying right about the beginning of October, one month before the election. And, uh, you know, th th this would more than seal the Democrats' midterm doom. So you got me. 
Uh, it, it, I suspect it's either one or the other, and we have to hope for that rationality and and just a, a modicum of self-interest uh, leads to the first alternative and not the second. And I have two quick notes on Republicans. Um, the Senate is about to confirm Biden's nominee to the Supreme Court, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson. Just as you predicted here a couple of weeks ago, three Republicans will vote to confirm Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and Mitt Romney. Uh, this week, Marjorie Taylor Greene, a Republican, now says those three Republican senators are, quote, pro-pedophile. That seems unlikely. Um, usually Republicans don't call each other pro-pedophile. What's going on here? Well, as you know, there's this far right, uh, uh, at this point, conspiratorial QAnon uh, wing of the Republican Party, of which Marjorie Taylor Greene is a charter member. By the way, as a member of the House, of course, the House isn't voting on this, it's just the Senate. Uh, but um, uh, Kevin McCarthy, has been reluctant to criticize any of the lunatics in his ranks uh, because he doesn't want any severe splits other than getting rid of Liz Cheney uh, before uh, the November election. And he's certainly hoping that uh, by preserving that unity, he will become uh, the next speaker of the House. So, um, you know, the Republicans are not really uh, uh, you know, criticizing uh, the lunatics in their ranks for attacking other people in their ranks. I have another question about lunatics in the ranks of House Republicans. Uh, on the subject of Ukraine and NATO, this week the House passed a bipartisan resolution uh, upholding the founding principles of NATO, quote, individual liberty, human rights, democracy, and the rule of law. 63 House Republicans voted against this resolution, reaffirming individual liberty, human rights, democracy, and the rule of law. Why? That's a damn good question. <laughs> uh, I, I think this is the pro-Putin, anti-Biden, uh, and that those two mindsets come together to lead uh, Republicans in, uh, in, in, in this direction. You wouldn't have thought that in uh, the kind of I don't know what to call it, neo-Cold War sensibility that is looking back at the formation of NATO, that it would have been the far right uh, that was opposed to this. I think even people like Robert Taft, who was the leader of the right wing of Republicans at the point at which NATO was created, would look at this with a resounding, huh? <laughs> Finally, I understand from a recent piece of yours in The Prospect that you read the editorials in the Wall Street Journal. Isn't that a big mistake? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, this is to, uh, you know, I mean, some people abuse themselves and over-exercising or whatever. So, you know, this is what I do. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, important to see what uh, this, sort of the lunatic sectarians on the right with you know, a somewhat more elevated tone than the Marjorie Taylor Greens are saying, just as I, you know, will occasionally follow, uh, you know, the uh, more extreme, say, Trotskyists on the left. There's kind of parallel uh, sensibilities there. The line in question was, quote, President Trump too often gave short shrift to American values, but Mr. Biden has swung too far in the opposite direction, close quote. What was it about this that got you going? 
It's one thing for the journal to accuse Biden of being old, not too bright, and way too liberal. But to accuse him of swinging too far towards American values, that's a new one. That's a new one. And I think it, it points up unintentionally in the case of the Wall Street Journal editorialists, the real distance between capitalist principles of self-interest, which the journal upholds, and American values, which sometimes are just completely out of sync with the kind of thing the journal editorialists uh, profess to uh, adhere to. Harold Meyerson, he reads the editorials in the Wall Street Journal. Harold, thanks for talking with us today. I read them for you so you don't have to read them. <laughs> Thank you for that. the same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. What if everybody voted? What if voting was a duty, not just a right, an obligation, something like jury duty? E.J. Dion and Miles Rappaport say it's time for universal voting. Their new book is 100% Democracy, the case for universal voting. E.J. is a syndicated columnist for The Washington Post, also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a professor at Georgetown University. Last time he was here, we talked about his book, Code Red, How Moderates and Progressives Can Unite to Save Our Country. E.J. Dion, welcome back. It is great of you to have us on, John. It's great to be with you. And Miles Rappaport is former Secretary of State of Connecticut. He's now a senior fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School. He's also former president of Demos and former president of Common Cause. And he's also an old friend from college days in SDS. Hi, Miles. John, hi. Good to be with you, too. Well, Republicans have been working for many decades to make it harder to vote. You guys want to make voting compulsory. We all know the case for eliminating obstacles to voting, like long lines at polling places in black neighborhoods. We want to protect the right to vote, block voter suppression, and prevent election subversion. Why isn't that enough for you guys? Why should people be required to vote if they don't want to, or if they don't care? EJ. It is not enough to have a democracy based on 40 to 50% of us at midterm elections. And even in a great turnout election like 2020, two-thirds of us in the election that Joe Biden won. I'm glad you connected those two, John, because our core point is that the best way to protect the right to vote is to assert a universal civic duty and obligation to vote. If this system is adopted, then all of the assumptions in the political system and the electoral system turn around to favor broad participation. Our book makes very clear that to adopt this system, you must also adopt what we call gateway reforms, which are all the things you talked about uh, to make it easier to vote. This means election officials would have to act in a way that's pro-democracy and that the election laws would have to make it easy for people to vote just as jury service 
is made as convenient as possible, as onerous as it can be. The, the jury duty metaphor is actually a really good metaphor for what we have in mind. Because when you think back to the civil rights movement, one of its greatest victories was ending discrimination in the selection of juries. What that really meant is that African-Americans, Black Americans, like white Americans, would join the pool of those required to serve uh, on juries. Charles Ogletree, the great civil rights lawyer and professor, talked about how juries give extraordinary power to ordinary citizens. That's exactly what elections do. And we think that by making voting uh, an obligation, uh, we will make our democracy much closer to what we have always hoped it could become, which is, in the title of our book, 100% democracy. Has anybody ever tried to make voting compulsory in a democracy? I know they do this in some totalitarian countries. Saddam Hussein had an election in Iraq in 2002. He reported 100% turnout and he got 100% of the vote. I, I don't think that's what you have in mind, but, but has anybody tried it other than Saddam Hussein? Miles. Well, yes, we uh, look very carefully using the Freedom House definition of democratic countries. And there are 26 countries around the world, 26 democratic countries that utilize universal voting in one form or another. We have kind of selected, uh, in a way, Australia as the best case in point, and EJ is the kind of world's leading expert on Australian elections. <laughs> um, but the reason is that they have had it since 1924. Uh, they have a political culture that is far more kind of celebratory and positive uh, than the one we have here. And people have assumed it as a, uh, as a, a part of, uh, of being a democratic citizen without trouble. But the truth is there are also other countries in Latin America, in Europe, in Africa, and around the world where they have done this. And generally speaking, the results have been good, the turnouts have been higher, and the electorate is more representative of, than, of the population as a whole. We're speaking with E.J. Dion and Miles Rappaport about their new book, 100% Democracy. They're in L.A. this week. Tonight, Thursday, they're appearing at Occidental College at 7 o'clock. You can get more information about that at eventbrite.com. And tomorrow, Friday, they'll be speaking at Cal State L.A. at 10 a.m. More info at calstatela.edu slash event. I think Australia is really helpful because, number one, they have a streamlined, extraordinary registration system uh, that gets virtually everybody on the rolls. One of my research assistants, when she was researching Australia, burst into my office and said, look at all the cool stuff Australia does to make sure that everybody can vote. Uh, and then they turn out, uh, they register roughly 96% of the population and 90% of that 96% turns out. Um, the second piece is Australia election days are like parties. Australia is known for democracy sausages because turnout is so big that every community group, schools and other charitable organizations use election day to raise money and they sell, among other things, uh, sausages that have come to be called democracy sausages. Uh, for you vegans out there, our book explicitly calls for <laughs> vegan alternatives okay. to democracy sausages. But one of the things that's wonderful about Australia is unlike us, 
they don't treat elections as uh, fancy dinner parties. There's no A-list of likely voters who get all the attention, and then B and C lists of voters uh, who are largely ignored. There is zero incentive for a political party to try to either suppress the other side's vote, because that's essentially illegal, or to use political advertising to discourage the other side's supporters from going to the polls. That changes the quality of the debate in what both Miles and I see um, as a much better in a much better direction. Would compulsory voting involve penalties on people who don't vote? Would you like fine people who don't vote? And wouldn't that fall unfairly on the poor? The premise of universal voting, as we call it, for both substantive reasons as well as messaging reasons, is that is to create a culture where it is the expectation of every citizen that you will participate and you will vote. Other countries have different mechanisms, but what we recommend is a kind of light touch enforcement where if you don't vote, you would get a letter from the secretary of the state or whomever. Explain You would have to explain your reason, which could be any kinds of uh, legitimate reasons. Uh, and if not, then you would get fined at the level of a traffic ticket. And we have taken great pains in the recommendations that we make in the book that this not become one of those instances where a small fine you know, then becomes uh, interest, it bears interest, it bears penalties, and sooner or later you have a real problem. Our recommendation is that uh, that it not be a fine that can be increased in any way. It can be done by community service, and people can assert, you know, a conscientious objection to voting. So again, our idea is not to penalize people, but it is to have the expectation and the sense of requirement that voting is something that you do in the same way that jury duty is treated now. Yeah, so, we would put a $20 ceiling on the fine. And if you take, again, the Australian experience, uh, only 13% of uh, non-voters end up paying the fine. They accept legitimate excuses. And a really important thing in our system, both for uh, constitutional reasons, but also for moral reasons, you're not required to vote for anyone. If you don't like any of the candidates, you can cast a blank ballot so there's no compelled speech here. You can scrawl anything you want across the ballot, which happens in Australia. Uh, and then just to be very clear on this, we would add a none of the above option to every race. We're not going, we're not about compelled speech. We're about compelled participation. It's quite clear to us that uh, since it is not compelled speech, but compelled conduct like jury duty, uh, it would pass constitutional muster. Yeah, let me ask about the constitutional issue for a minute here. The The original Constitution of 1789 had nothing about a right to vote. And indeed, there wasn't universal, nothing like universal voting uh, in, in the 18th and early 19th century. The 15th Amendment does mention a right to vote, but all it says is, is that it won't be abridged because of previous condition of servitude. And of course, that's a long way from a mandate. You're, you're exactly right about the early republic. The idea of 100% democracy is premised on the trajectory that we have been on from the beginning of the republic. That yes, we started out where the, when we started out, it was essentially white male landowners or property holders who could vote and everybody else was excluded. And over time, we've extended the franchise uh, later to all uh, white men and then uh, briefly after uh, after the Civil War during uh, Reconstruction, 
uh, to black men as well. And then that right was rolled back. But then eventually we got the vote to everyone, to uh, to women in the 1920s and then to black Americans and everyone else through the Voting Rights Act. Even And let's mention 18 year olds got the right to vote in what, Correct. 1971. I remember. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I remember. You know, so this is about keeping us on that trajectory of uh, inclusion. If you ask me, I'm I'm very sympathetic to those who want to add an affirmative right to vote to the U.S. Constitution. I think that would be a good idea. But we think that adopting this idea, which, by the way, and we'll probably get to this, we understand it's not going to be picked up tomorrow morning by a U.S. Congress where we can't even get through necessary reforms like the uh, John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act or the Freedom to Vote Act. We think this can start at the local level uh, and the state level. And there are already two bills uh, to advance this idea that are in legislatures in Connecticut and uh, in Massachusetts. So it's starting to percolate up. And our idea is to get this proposal into the mainstream conversation as a real game changer in our voting rights debate. I'll just add that, the, you know, it, it's it's also the case that we are very, very strongly supportive of a whole series of reforms that are shorter term and that are the subject of public debate now, whether that's same day voter registration or early voting or universal mail in voting or restoration of voting rights for people with felony convictions. You know, all these are essential reforms. We call them gateway reforms because we think that they are the necessary kind of precondition for the successful implementation of a universal voting system. But we want to have the universal voting system, the idea, the fundamental idea that everyone in our society should participate in the, in the process of self-government as a kind of North Star reform to which we will go, you know, and keep in mind, even as we argue over the shorter term things, and even as even the even the small reforms to open up the process are being viciously opposed by many, many people in the society, which is too bad. Different question. What do we know about non-voters? This is something that political scientists and uh, and campaign directors have been studying for, for decades. The, they call these low propensity voters. Uh, many people think of them as unmotivated, ignorant people, people who don't care, maybe people who think all of politics is a ripoff. Why is it good for democracy to require those people to vote? Well, a couple of things. One is um, we really take on the ignorant voters, so-called ignorant voters argument in the book, uh, because our view is if you start making that argument, you're really mistrustful of democracy altogether. Uh, and democracy is based on the idea that people with all kinds of levels of education and income and every race and class and ethnic group have something to contribute to this democracy. And we hold, uh, uh, I, I love the O'Keefe's old book, The Responsible Electorate, which begins uh, with uh, the sentence goes something like the premise of this short but the unlikely premise of this short book is that voters are not fools and we don't <laughs> think the voters are fools even when we might disagree with how they vote in a given election and we don't think that non-voters are um, people who will uh, somehow add to the ignorance level in fact what we found in our research is a lot of the people who argue against our idea also don't much like the existing electorate uh, and <laughs> condemn them. 
There's a lot of research, as you suggest, on the non-voters, and it, it goes in a lot of different directions. Our sense is that this uh, a, an, the electorate produced by our proposal would almost certainly be younger because uh, there is a higher level of abstention among young people, partly because our laws make it harder for young people who move around a lot to vote. There would also be a larger number of uh, folks with uh, blue-collar uh, occupations, less formal education, fewer degrees or few, uh, less uh, formal education. Uh, while there's been an enormous increase in uh, turnout among Black Americans, it would probably, it would also make the electorate uh, more diverse uh, Black and Latino voters. It, but it would also include more white working class voters. And I think that's an important point to underline. This became law in Australia because each party way back when thought it had some advantage to them in it. And while Miles and I are both progressive in our politics, this is not an agenda to turn the electorate into something that will elect progressives in every election, even if Miles and I would kind of like that. Uh, the purpose of this is to include everyone. Uh, and we, we actually make a case that if you look at the 2020 election in terms of the big, big turnout increases we did have, in many places, this helped Republicans elect members of Congress because there were big turnout increases in certain parts of the country in constituencies that uh, lean toward the Republicans. So um, this is not a partisan effort. This is an effort to have a more inclusive electorate, and we are happy to live with the results. On the other hand, re Republicans have spent decades trying to make it harder to vote, apparently because they think that if more people vote, more Democrats will be elected. And indeed, in 2020, highest turnout in history, Biden got a record number of votes and beat Trump by 7 million. Don't you think more Democrats will win elections if we have universal uh, voting? You know, we really do start from the premise, and it is a fundamental values premise, that we want to have a fully inclusive, fully representative democracy, and that the current electorate is, you know, skewed in a variety of directions towards older, whiter, more educated, and richer voters. And we think that the best decisions would be made, as is the case in jury selection, you know, where you have a fully representative electorate. So that's an article of faith on our part. Yes, it is clear that there has been an effort to make it harder for people to vote. That effort is continuing, you know, in legislatures uh, around the country. I do want to make the point that I think there are a number of Republican election officials and elected officials who do believe in uh, encouraging people to vote. I don't think it's a uniform thing, but I do think that, that there is at least a, a, a faction trying to roll back the clock. So that has to be fought. I think it has to be fought in litigation. It has to be fought in legislation, et cetera. But at the same time, we don't want to stop thinking about tomorrow. So we want to think about what it would be like if we had a fully, fully inclusive electorate. That's our goal. That's our hope. We're speaking with E.J. Dion and Miles Rappaport about their new book, 100% Democracy. They're in L.A. this week. Tonight, Thursday, they're appearing at Occidental College at 7 o'clock. You can get more information about that at eventbrite.com. And tomorrow, Friday, they'll be speaking at Cal State L.A. at 10 a.m. More info at calstatela.edu slash event. 
One other thing about the non-voter, the evidence that we have uh, is that non-voters tend to be less ideological. So this would produce very likely a more moderate electorate. I have talked about this idea with the Republicans, and at least some Republicans understand that if this system, uh, and these tend to be anti-Trump Republicans, they understand that if a system like this took hold, uh, a more moderate electorate would create pressure on the Republican Party uh, to move away from the far right. But it would create pressure on everybody, including people with strongly ideological opinions, to appeal to voters uh, who care about the future of the country, but don't necessarily see issues in ideological terms. Uh, I joke that either Miles and I are really honest or fools because this is the only book anyone will ever read where we did polling that shows that right now a majority of Americans oppose our idea. As of right now, 26% of Americans support this, which actually we thought was pretty good for an idea that has never been advanced systematically. Uh, 48% strongly oppose. But if you look at that 48%, what that means is about half the country is already open to this. This polling was done before Trump really toxified election issues. And what was interesting is Democrats were only marginally more in favor of this than Republicans. Uh, it, it was 33% of Democrats were for it, but 29% of Republicans supported it. And on a different question, we asked, is voting a right and a duty, a right but not a duty, or neither a right nor a duty? 61% of Americans share our underlying premise that voting is both a right and a duty. And the number came up exactly the same for Republicans and Democrats, 69% each. So in, in at least the uh, before this Trumpification of thinking about voting, there were Republicans who were open to uh, having a conversation, at least, about this. And we hope that can happen over time. E.J. Dion and Miles Rappaport, their new book is 100% Democracy, The Case for Universal Voting. Guys, you've convinced me. Thanks for talking with us today. Thank you. Thank you, John. Same old story. This is Living in the USA, and I'm John Wiener, talking about politics, thinking about the left. Now it's time for Sports Talk on KPFK. It's baseball opening day, a good day to talk about baseball oligarchs and baseball rebels. Opening day this year was delayed because of conflict between the owners and the players' union over a new collective bargaining agreement. Three months after the league owners locked out the players at the beginning of December, for comment, we turn to Peter Dreyer. He's a distinguished professor of politics at Occidental College, a former newspaper reporter, community organizer, and senior policy advisor to Boston Mayor Ray Flynn. He's the author of seven books, two of which are being published basically this week, Baseball Rebels, The Players, People, and Social Movements That Shook Up the Game and Changed America, and a companion volume, Major League Rebels, Baseball Battles Over Workers' Rights and American Empire. He's also a contributor to The Nation. Peter Dreyer, welcome back. Thank you, John. 
Well, when the owners finally signed a contract to end the lockout and permit spring training to begin, Bernie Sanders issued a blistering statement. He said, quote, we must prevent the greed of baseball's oligarchs from destroying the game, close quote. What was he talking about? There's no doubt that baseball owners, the 30 owners of the major league teams, are mostly billionaires. They're greedy. Uh, they have little regard for the players or for the fans. Most of them made their money either the old-fashioned way by inheriting it from their parents, okay. or they got it through you know private equity. The, the wealthiest owner in baseball, Steve Cohen, he's a Wall Street private equity guy. He owns the Mets, um, and it's worth about uh, $100 billion. Um, but, um, you know, the, the real issue here is whether the players union is strong enough to counter the power of these billionaire owners. And in the last uh, negotiations that ended a couple of weeks ago, the players won most of what they were fighting for. So, you know, the fans know that the, uh, the owners are billionaires. What's a little misleading and which we talk about in our books is that most of the major league players are not millionaires. Um, the average player only lasts about three years in the majors, three or four years in the majors. About 30% of them only last a year. Um, they spend most of their time in the minors, the minor leagues, where they get poverty wages and live in miserable uh, living situations. Um, and that's kind of overlooked in the discussion of, you know, the the players making a lot of money. They make and a lot part of money. Of, let me just say, let me yeah. just say part of what has been overlooked, but Bernie didn't overlook it, is that the uh, MLB owners this year shut down minor league teams in 43 towns, including Bernie's hometown of Burlington, Vermont. Yeah. Uh, that hurts a lot of people. Yeah, there's a lot, you know, there are hundreds of uh, cities and small towns around the country that have minor league teams. Um, they don't make a lot of money, but they're a training ground for the players. Um, football and basketball have college as their training grounds, so they don't need minor leagues. But baseball doesn't do that. Um, and these minor leagues are in these little towns like, you know, like Burlington, Vermont, where Bernie's from, uh, that provide a source of entertainment. But they also provide jobs for people at the uh, stadiums. Um, and Rob Manford, who's the... Uh, the commissioner of baseball, basically a mouthpiece for the billionaire owners. He uh, he shut down 42 teams because um, they wanted to consolidate the, um, the minor leagues and have fewer teams and basically have fewer players uh, in the pipeline. And they they did that and they did it unilaterally. And Bernie fought back, uh, but he wasn't able to prevail on that. Well, your book, Baseball Rebels, uh, opens with a wonderful introduction by Dave Zirin, the nation's sports editor. He notes that baseball is the most conservative sport in America, culturally, socially, politically, and yet it's also produced some of the most important rebels in sports history and in American history. So I, I want to start with the conservatism of, of baseball. One recent example is Black Lives Matter. It did reach baseball but slowly and more quietly than, uh, than other sports. For the Dodgers, at the 2020 season opener, Mookie Betts, who I think may have been the only American-born black starter for the team at that point, 
took a knee during the national anthem, following the example, of course, set by Colin Kaepernick in football. But he was the only Dodger to do that. Two white stars, Cody Bellinger and Max Muncy, stood on either side of him with a hand on one of his shoulders. So this was solidarity with Mookie, but it was not kneeling for Black Lives Matter. I wonder if you would comment on that and on support for Black Lives Matter in baseball. It's one of the topics in your book, Baseball Rebels. Uh, When Jackie Robinson integrated baseball in 1947, it was an earth-shattering moment in American history. Right after World War II, before the Montgomery bus boycott, before Brown versus Board of Education decision. And it's hard to recall for people today how important that was. Um, But after Jackie Robinson uh, joined the Dodgers in 1947, baseball actually integrated pretty slowly. Um, It wasn't until 12 years later that every major league team had a black player. By the 70s, um, about 20% of all the players in the major leagues were African-American. Now it's down to less than 10% because there's so many more uh, uh, Latino players and Latin American players. Um, And uh, there are very few black managers, very few black uh, general managers, There's only one black owner and he's no longer there, Derek Jeter. Um, And so it's definitely a sport that has a long tradition of conservatism uh, for two reasons. One um, is that the owners were racist. Back in 1947 of the then 16 owners, only one of them, Branch Rickey from the Dodgers uh, was in favor of integration. All the others tried to stop him, but they couldn't. Uh, but for years before that, there were no African-American players because the, the owners didn't want it, not because the players didn't want it. And the other reason for baseball being uh, conservative today is that a lot uh, fewer of them have gone to college than in basketball or football. A lot of them are from the South. Um, and uh, th- this is interesting, something I didn't know until I did the research for Baseball Rebels. Uh, there's a much bigger culture of evangelical conservatism among players on major league teams. Yeah, I had forgotten a story that you open Major League Rebels with. When George W. Bush began the war in Iraq in 2003, Major League Baseball mandated the singing of God Bless America during the seventh inning stretch of every game. Did any of the players object to that? Uh, quite a few objected, but um, they didn't have the uh, either the courage or the ability to um, to protest, except for one guy who got got it started, Carlos Delgado from the Toronto Blue Jays, and he he'd already been protesting uh, other things. He was protesting the uh, U.S. Uh, Air Force's bombing of a little island off of Puerto Rico called Vieques, where he's from. Um, And he sat in the dugout while they were playing the national anthem and singing God Bless America in the seventh inning. Uh, And he refused to come out of the dugout while they were doing that. This was, you know, 25 years before Colin Kaepernick. So um, he was quite a a rebel. And um, his teammates uh, privately told him, some of them told him they supported him. But they're just like the guys that are not taking a knee, but say they support their teammates who do. Um, so Carlos Delgado was one of the heroes in our book. To me, the most eye-opening part of your book was a section on resisting homophobia, gay men in baseball. 
not a very well-known topic outside of gay America. Tell us about resisting homophobia in baseball. Yeah, well, you know, the gay rights movement has had a huge impact on our culture and including in sports. And when Billie Jean King came out of the closet in 1981, this tennis star, it was a big story. She lost a lot of her commercial endorsements and so forth. And it's been easier for athletes that are in individual sports, like diving and tennis and uh, so forth, to come out. It's been harder for uh, players on team men, particularly men. Um, it's, it's been easier for women to come out of the closet. Um, but in Major League Baseball, there are two uh, former players, um, Billy Bean and Glenn Burke. Glenn Burke played for the Dodgers. Billy Bean also played for the Dodgers for a while, but was mostly known for playing for the Tigers. Um, and they were, they were out to their friends while they were in uniform, but not to the public. And they suffered emotionally a great deal. Um, ultimately, Glenn Burke had to quit sports because of injuries. Um, and he really, uh, and he was out to his friends. He lived up in Oakland, but he died of AIDS. He died broke, basically. Billy Bean didn't suffer that fate. Billy Bean uh, came out of the closet about five, about eight years after he left Major League Baseball. He said he couldn't leave, uh, lead a double life anymore. And so he quit Major League Baseball. He owned a restaurant for a while. And, that, and then about 10 years ago, Major League Baseball hired him as their first vice president for inclusion. His job is to basically kind of open the gates of at all levels of baseball, from the playing field to the uh, press box to the executive suite uh, to gay men and women. But there, you know, over the history of baseball, there have been 20,000 players. And not one of them has been out of the closet. Never. Right? Amazing. But Amazing. Uh, Billy B told me he thinks that'll happen sometime in the next five or 10 years. You know, the, the, the most outspoken of all the players, and there have been quite a few, is Sean Doolittle, who's now back with the Washington Nationals. He's been uh, a rebel on almost every issue, workers' rights, uh, uh, homophobia, racism. Um, and he's also a DSA member. He may be the only DSA member among Major League Baseball players. Great. Although I do uh, talk in the book, Baseball Rebels, about a guy named Sam Nahum, a pitcher for the Dodgers, Phillies, and Cardinals, who while he was playing Major League Baseball in the 1930s and 40s, was a member of the Communist Party. So we've talked about the owners, we've talked about the players, we have not yet talked about the baseballs themselves, which I learned from your books, are also a subject of importance. Uh, Every Major League Baseball that's used in all the games, the playoffs, the World Series, the All-Star Game, is made in a factory in Costa Rica, a little town in Costa Rica, uh, which is basically a sweatshop. The workers are uh, get very little money. Um, they have to work on piecework. They have serious injuries, uh, carpal tunnel syndrome, because of the working conditions. Um, uh, if they complain, they get fired. Uh, it's been going on like this for over 20 years. There's been a few exposés in various, uh, by various human rights groups about it. But something happened uh, five years ago that should have made a difference and hopefully will soon, which is uh, prior to that, the Rawlings company owned this factory in Costa Rica that makes about 2 million baseballs a year that are used by Major League Baseball. And about five years ago, 
Major League Baseball itself took a 25% ownership of this factory. So um, it is a true statement to say that the owners of Major League Baseball own a sweatshop. Um, and I think it's really important for that, for the players, any of whom are concerned about uh, workers' rights, to be concerned about the rights of the workers that make their uniforms, that make their cleats, their, their shoes, which are usually made in sweatshops in Asia, but particular, this one factory in Costa Rica. And I would love to see the, the players' union organize a, a tour, a visit to that factory by some of the players that would generate a lot of publicity and basically embarrass the, the billionaire owners about owning this sweatshop and uh, get them to uh, improve the conditions in that factory in Costa Rica because it's when they're making something as fundamentally important as the baseball itself. Peter Dreyer, he's co-author of two new books, Baseball Rebels, The Players, People, and Social Movements That Shook Up the Game and Changed America, and a companion volume, Major League Rebels, Baseball Battles Over Workers' Rights and American Empire. Peter, thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. That's it for today's Living in the USA. Our sound editors are Will Broughton and Alan Minsky. Our social media maven is Renee Reynolds. KPFK's programming traffic director is Matt Perez. Thanks as always to Rye Cooter for our theme music Mambo Sinuendo. Living in the USA is recorded and produced at our Blythe Avenue studios in Los Angeles. If you miss part of this show or any of our recent shows, you can listen online anytime you want at livingintheusapod.com. I'm John Wiener. We'll be back next week talking about politics, thinking about the left, and living in the USA. Living in the USA.